We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Chris Horton, a freelance journalist here in Taiwan who has had numerous articles published in the New York Times. Hi, Gavin. Good to be back. And on the phone by Jia Tingye of Kataglan Media. Good to be back as well. Tonight we'll be discussing a protest that disrupted the Universiade opening ceremony, new leadership and a new policy platform for the KMT, insecticide-tainted eggs and angry firefighters who were simply tired of pest control, plus more. But we'll begin with breaking news this Friday morning here in Taiwan that the island's former Sat-5 satellite made it into orbit following a successful launch atop a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Now, the satellite blasted off at around 3am Taiwan time this morning and the island's Deputy Science Minister Su Feng Ching, the head of the National Applied Research Laboratory Yang Hong Dun and the American Institute in Taiwan Chairman James Moriarty were at the airbase to witness the launch. Now, the Earth Observation Satellite is the first to be fully designed by Taiwan's National Space Organization, and it was developed to provide global imagery with a wide array of uses. Now, its main instrumentation is a sensor that produces high-resolution black and white as well as color images, and developers say that the 5.7 billion NT dollar satellite will allow for faster and better informed disaster prevention and response in the event of earthquakes or typhoons. Phones. Now, the former Sat 5 was designed to replace the former Sat 2, which was retired last August. And the National Space Organization said that the satellite started communications with Earth 82 minutes and 56 seconds after liftoff. So, I guess it's working okay. And President Tsai Ing-wen basically commented on the launch and it's working okay shortly after it was basically launched that's the simplest way to say that and she said that its successful launch into orbit shows that Taiwan has taken another giant step in its technological progress and it will create momentum in the development of the country's space related industries. So Jia Ting do you think this will kickstart more space related development and industry work in Taiwan? Um, I think it's a pretty uh, good development for Taiwan to um, have its uh, aerospace uh, technologies and industry to work with um, sort of the leading company in the U.S. Um, I think this is a very high-profile kind of thing. And, you know, it's for the Taiwanese, it's especially important sort of in, in the collective psyche that Taiwan is seen by the, the, the rest of the world, right? So I think this definitely... Um, is a news that a lot of people are excited about. Right, and Chris, obviously Taiwan has made components for other people's satellites in the past, but this is the first one fully developed in Taiwan. And what do you think this means for Taiwan's space industry? Well, I, I think it uh, it shows that it's it's arrived. Um, also, I agree with Jay Ting, like... Uh, in terms of a morale boost and an image boost, this is this is only going to help. No, but don't think Taiwan's not going to be putting a man on the moon next um, week. Maybe, maybe they'll go straight to Mars. There you go. There you go. Jia Ting, straight to Mars or on the moon first? Um, I don't know, but I thought uh, Taiwan has already made an appearance in, um, what was that movie called? Armageddon, right? Did was, it, that, was that the movie? Did, I, I haven't have, seen it. I have no idea. <laughs> Anyway, if it if it did, it did. It's good. If it didn't, it's bad. But there you go. Taiwan's now got its own fully made satellite going around the globe. And in fact, 
We're recording this, and the satellite is at the moment passing over Taiwan as we record this program at 9.35 a.m. and 50 seconds. There you go. So people in Taiwan are now on the streets waving into the sky, hopefully. Anyway, let's move on from that good news and to rather gritty news and that of violent scenes in the opening ceremony of the Taipei Universiad. This was, of course, last Saturday when several hundred protesters managed to break through a police cordon and blocked team members from competing countries from entering the Taipei Municipal Stadium for the World University Games' lavishly staged opening ceremony. Anti-pension reform protesters scuffled with police while pro-Taiwan groups yelled at everybody amid a barrage of air horns and to cap it all some bright spark decided to throw a smoke bomb into the mix now taipei mayor kerwinger condemned the violent scenes describing the protesters actions as illegal and he also went on to say that the actions invalidated the legitimacy of their arguments while premier lin chuan vowed to clamp down on protesters at university ad venues saying that the national police agency has orders to detain any individual who poses a threat to athletes or spectators and we also had the bruised and battered but still brave face of police officer Liu Jin Chun plastered all over the news as authorities sought to track down the ringleaders of the violence. Well, the anti-pension reform protesters took the brunt of the blame for the violence. There's been claims that agitators were among the protesters and also questions over whether the pro-Taiwan groups that are also protesting outside the stadium were completely blameless in the violence. So, Jia Ting, you saw it on television. What did you make of this? Um... I mean, I think the first reaction from um, a lot of people was that, um, wow, I can't believe they did this. Uh, you know, this is a great um, sports, sporting event, international sporting event. Every, a lot of people are, uh, you know, looking forward to. And at the opening ceremony, which is, you know, traditionally for these type of things, the place where the host nation really show off, you know, how great they are, how much they've already, you know, they've arrived, right? And we... You know, it's sort of in the same vein as the um, the, the foremost satellite story. You know, this is a, a moment for Taiwan to shine internationally. And then you have these um, protesters that kind of, you know, disrupted the flow. And, you know, I think a lot of people's first reaction was, wow, how can you sort of bring shame upon our our, our people, our country in this way? Um, so I think, I think that's the... The, the sort of narrative that a lot of people went to and sort of as, almost a, as a reflex. Right. I mean, Chris, what you, you saw it on television. You saw it. What did you think of this? I was actually in attendance. Um, I, I, I believe it was Burundi. Uh, the Burundi athletic uh, delegation uh, entered. And then I think Canada was announced and it was just a flag bearer. And I don't, I don't, I didn't, think there would be any reason for Canada to boycott the opening ceremony. Um, I don't think they've uh, signed on to the one China principle uh, to that degree. Um, but yeah, it was it was a little strange. China did the China delegation didn't come out, um, which I was kind of expecting. And then just everyone afterwards, uh, you know, it was just flag bearers. It was obvious something was wrong. Uh, everybody was on their phones and realized that something had been going on outside. It was difficult to. Uh, to uh, to leave the stadium, I wanted to check out what was going on, and uh, yeah, it, it was uh, things. Things were quite tense uh, for for about fifteen twenty minutes, and then uh, once the delegations started lining up, um, oh yeah, the the Canada team uh, sang sang Oh Canada while they were waiting. So there was, 
you know, even though even though there was a disruption, um, it seemed like the athletic delegations were were patient. You know, they had they'd come from uh, from far and wide to uh, to participate in this event, and uh, everybody in the stadium patiently waited as well. I mean, Taiwan rarely gets a moment in, in the spotlight, and so I, I think you know waiting. Waiting years for this, uh, you know that most people were willing to wait another half hour. I mean, do you think it was an embarrassment to Taiwan? I think, um, you know, I think it was internally. I think, I mean, I think Taiwanese people were, were more ashamed at how Taiwanese people behaved. But uh, in terms of like on the global stage, I don't think, I don't think, you know, I, this is just a small blip. Uh, it, I, I don't really think it made waves uh, outside of Taiwan. I don't think it hurt Taiwan's international image in, at all. Well, Jetting, obviously you're in San Francisco. Did your friends talk about this? Uh, I mean, not anybody who wasn't already watching the game, you know, were from Taiwan, right? And I think actually, if you think about it, um, we, you know, this kind of topic comes up in, during the Olympics, right? When we're talking about China hosting or Russia hosting, right? These sort of um, non-democratic places. And um, there's all these stories about, you know, the, the government trying to get rid of homeless people on the streets, you know, make sure people don't, you know, there's so much security just to, to make sure, you know, there are no quote-unquote hiccups, right, or, or, you know, people disrupting things. And, you know, I, I think if you think about it, this could actually be a, you know, okay, yes, like we, um, there, there was a hiccup, but, you know, Taiwan is a democratic society and there are people who, you know, would like to voice their opinions in some, you know, in certain ways that disrupt, um, that that's disrupted, right? And you know, because they feel like their voice is not being heard or their side is not being, um, you know, ad- adequately um, respected. Now, I also actually have seen um, quite a, a, sort of an interesting twist to this, which is, um, uh, uh, I think uh, some of the more self-aware or self-reflective. Um, uh, people that were involved in the sunflower movement or um, sort of come out of that um, supporters of the sunflower movement, right? So these people are kind of saying, well, can we condemn these people's positions but not condemn their tactics or condemn their methods? Right? And I think there's some sort of interesting um, lot, you know, debate in logic or a philosophy that's sort of going on, right? Because I think there are people who are, you know, thinking, well, you know, if people who are, were, were opposed to the Sunflower Movement would say, well, you know, if you guys do this, shut down the government, then yeah, like, you know, we could shut down the government or we can shut down an international sporting event whenever we don't feel like um, things are going our way, right? So I think there's um, some interesting discussions kind of going on about, you know, how do we square that? Or do we say, okay, you know what, like, we do um, agree your right, you know, we, it, it, we, we, we do, we are okay with your right to disrupt a sporting event. Or to say, well, okay, you know, these tactics were different in some way, somehow, from the Sunflower Movement tactics. And, you know, I think there's some interesting ways people are kind of going about that. Ramin, Chris, do you think the police could have sort of handled it a bit better? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't there. I was, I was inside the stadium. When I got out, it seemed like the police were on top of things. Um, when I tried to leave, uh, uh, I, I left... Uh, a little bit into the uh, the cultural performance uh, sec- uh, segment. Um, it was it was actually there, I think there was pretty much just one exit, so like they they weren't letting people leave out the west side. So you, you know you had 
uh, all the media and a lot of other people were on the west side, so you had to go all the way over to the east side of the stadium. It seems like the police, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to speculate. It, it seems like if they want to have have things locked down, they, uh, they're they capable. So, I, I mean, I, I didn't see what happened. Maybe they maybe they just weren't expecting what came. I don't think they were expecting. The, the, the head of the Wanhua Police Precinct has been quoted as saying that he was basically his officers were outnumbered when some 300 protesters gathered at the intersections of Dunhua and Bada and Dunhua and Nanjing East Roads. And the police were basically saying they didn't expect this many protesters to actually descend on the stadium. But there you go. It's a yeah. protest. It's a sporting event. Anyway, Jia Ting, I mean, there's been talk of basically this protest moving people to lose support in the anti basically the anti pension reform protesters. Whether some people might have supported their cause once upon a time, this protest has led certain people to say, I don't support these protesters anymore. What do you think? Um, I think that's definitely uh, right. Um, again, Taiwan needs society, but has this very sort of sensitive, collective, um, you know, nerve about Taiwan's international image, right? Taiwan um, being seen in the eyes of foreigners. And, um, you know, I think just from my observation of what's going, like the discussions going on online, um, a lot of people are saying, okay, look, you know, you can protest, you can stake out, you know, you can camp outside the the presidential office, and that's all fine, but we have guests. Right. And these are these are guests. You don't air your dirty laundry in front of guests, right? You don't disrupt. You know, you, you don't you don't make life harder for them. Um, so I think that's a, how a lot of people um, try to cut that logic, right? So you know, yes, you can protest. Yes, you know, we don't agree with your views, but we agree with your right to protest. But you know, there is this line you don't cross, and in Taiwan, apparently, it's you know, if you embarrass, if you seem to be you know embarrass ourselves in front of our foreign guests. And so I think a lot of people say, you know what, like that's one step too far. And um, you know, before I might have had some sympathy for you, or I might have, um, you know, thought about, you know, some ways maybe we can make your, you know, maybe we can have some sort of compromise or supported some sort of compromise solution. Um, I think some people now will probably say, okay, well, that's just too much. Um, yeah, that was not that was uncalled for. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the reaction to. Uh, uh Mayor Ka's, uh post on on Facebook said at all. I mean, it, I think I think it's since been deleted, or the uh, the thread that he was responding to, uh, where a, a woman uh, was basically calling calling the mayor a bastard and and asking, you know, who 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 because he he had called uh, the the protesters uh, the disruptors. He called them bastards in a press conference, I believe, and uh, she's she was saying on Facebook, "Who are the bastards?" And uh, and he straight up said, "You and uh, you and your anti, uh, you and those anti-pension reform uh, groups." And it got what it got like close to half a million likes on Facebook in in about twenty four hours, which in a in a I mean I, I I would imagine most of those likes came from Taiwanese people. So I mean that's that's quite a big slice of society just instantly responding to that. Obviously doesn't. Uh, you know, it doesn't capture everyone's opinion, but from uh, from at least as far as the people I've been speaking to, they all they all thought that was uh, the appropriate response. Bastards! 
That was the appropriate response. There you go. That was the mayor, not me. That was Mayor Kerwinger talking about the protesters. Anyway, we'll move on now. And the KMT's new chairman, former Vice President Uduni, was sworn in last Sunday. And the party also approved a new policy platform. Now, in his inaugural address, U voiced his full support behind adherence to the 1992 consensus under its original wording, that is. And that wording states that both sides of the Taiwan Strait follow the One China principle, but both sides agree to their own interpretation interpretation of what that means. Who also vowed to re-establish dialogue with China, attract younger voters to the KMT cause, revive the party and boost the economy. Now, he also led the party Congress in approving an amendment revoking a proposal to negotiate a peace agreement with China. And of course, that peace agreement clause was pushed through the party platform last year by Wu's predecessor, Hong Shouju. So, pretty much a return to the Ma Ying-jeou party leadership era rather than anything too radical here jetting um i mean i don't think so it, it just i mean as you said it's pretty much the mind joe path um i think the night when the 1980s consensus is probably one of the last things that the kmt could um really definitively differentiate themselves from the from the dpp um you know and i think um attract young young voters i mean who doesn't want to attract young voters right um has the kmt done a very good job of that mm, i think I think we all know the answer to that, right? Um, Wu Dunyi, he just, I mean, he's the face of the party. Um, does that look like a young party? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Right, obviously, do you think that Wu Dunyi taking over is, is going to expel the Hongshou Zhu sort of clique that took over for a while? Um, I think that remains to be seen, although um, I am not 100% sure if, um, they're going to go away anytime soon. Um, I would imagine the new party would be kind of trying to court them. Um, but that, then again, you know, I don't, I don't really know who else out there is really, you know, cheering for the KMT at this point. Um, I mean, you, I think for the KMT, you have traditionally you have the pro-China national identity, and you know, the people who really care about keeping their you know, so pro-China identity superior. So you have those voters that are by hard supporters of the KMT. And then you have sort of the middle voters or what, you know, people who are more concerned about stability, you know, the economy, having professional faces, you know, technocrats running the country, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I really um, feel like the, the, the latter group that I describe, and by definition, they're sort of opportunists, right? And so I think at this point, if the DPP can prove that they can also manage the economy well, um, and or if the KMT, you know, is not able to definitively show these people that, yes, the KMT still got what it takes to improve the economy, then I think it's not that easy for the KMT to sort of come back. Um, yeah, in terms of the KMT, I, I'd say right now they're, they're still trying to figure out how to how to differentiate themselves from the KMT of the past, um, in terms of attracting youth, you know, they have, they have a few young voices, uh, John, uh, Wayne Chang, uh, Chang Kai-shek's, uh, great, great grandson, uh, is one, you know, he worked as a lawyer in Silicon Valley. Um, you've got, uh, Jason Shu, another one, uh, you know, he's, he's pushing, he's pushing digital innovation pretty, uh, pretty hard. And, uh, and also he's, he's at the forefront of the push for, uh, same-sex marriage. So, you know, you have these kind of young progressive 
voices that are really not, uh, you know, they're not anywhere near the forefront of the party, uh, you know, and if you're trying to attract young people to your party, but you're kind of keeping, uh, I I don't want to say keeping those voices down, but, you know, not not magnifying or amplifying them, you know, uh, you know, take, for example, the uh, the Democratic Party in the United States, uh, Barack Obama was pretty young when he when he started getting a platform and uh you know at some point people realized that this guy's got a voice and and people connect uh to it so let's you know let's uh give him a bigger platform uh i i think you know there's there's obviously a lot of uh entrenched interests in the uh in the at the top of the hierarchy of of the the Guomindang. um i don't know how they're going to you know that I don't see them relinquishing their power or, or giving up the spotlight anytime soon to to uh, fresh voices. Yeah, and I think especially since the KMT, you know, just by its history and by its culture, it's extremely reliant on a system of seniority, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, it, it, it's very hard for me to imagine, um, you know, like young people or the, the younger generation, these rising stars, sort of going through the, or the, the ordinary channels, like KMT members become sort of the rising stars. You know, I, I've heard these people get together and, you know, really revolutionize something within the party, you know, or I, you know, I, I wouldn't bet on the KMT just yet. Right, and there we'll have to leave it, and we'll take a short break, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, there was another food scare here in Taiwan this week. <laughs> there we go, fanar, fanar. But the island was not alone this time, as it centred on traces of the pesticide fipronil being found in eggs. Now, the investigation comes as fipronil-tainted egg farms in the Netherlands and Belgium have been found to be responsible for a contamination scare that has affected Britain, Germany and even South Korea. Now, fipronil is a widely used anti-flea treatment pesticide, and while the owner of the affected farms here in Taiwan have denied using the chemical. Zhanghua County officials who are taking the lead in this investigation have been quoted as saying that the situation is likely related to the defleeing of hens at the farms and the owners could have possibly spread fipronil to kill fleas on the hens and the fipronil accidentally entered the feed. Now, of course, dioxin was found in eggs in the farms, and of course it got there because the chickens ate the feed and the eggs came out the chickens. Ergo, we have tainted eggs. Now... This is not the first time this has happened because in Zhanghua back in April we were all told not to worry because even if a person spent all of their life eating the dioxin eggs the levels would soon still be safe. This was of course in April when it first came to light here in Taiwan that dioxins were in eggs. So with parts of Europe now beset by the same problem and major supermarkets there forced to pull not only eggs but also sandwiches, salads and other foods containing egg products from their store shelves, should we be worried rather this time, Chris? Well, uh, you know, I think there's always a food scandal somewhere in Taiwan, it seems. Uh, The the news is is always, uh, you know... there's never too long before another scandal pops up, and I I think it's because there's always something wrong somewhere. Um, 
which is part of just a it's just a fact of this uh industrial food production uh you know way of life that we have uh pretty much in every modernized country um so you know what's uh what do you do i think you know it's it's really about regulation and testing um that would be the only way you know if if there's enforcement um and quick shutdown then you know that that boosts public confidence that when there are problems they'll be detected um you know having having spent more than a decade in china you know uh it's it's uh i got to say the stuff that happens here doesn't you know it doesn't reach the levels of say like the the melamine scandal where you know where where babies where infants were getting uh, kidney stones and and there was a huge cover up stuff like that um but you know people need to be confident in what they're eating and basically public confidence in uh in the ability to uh eat eat the food that's produced locally without uh, getting ill is is definitely an important thing uh and you know for better or for worse a lot of that uh responsibility or the, the onus lies on the government and making sure that they uh that they monitor everything that people are eating and uh when when something's amiss uh making it public and uh and taking whatever measures need to be taken. Right, Jieting, do you plan to have eggs on toast when you come back to Taiwan for a visit next? Oh, um yeah, sure. And like the oyster omelets, um yeah, I mean if you know, I'm not eating that stuff every day, right? But, you know, in all seriousness, you know, I think um from from my perspective, right? Taiwan again this international image kind of situation, right? Taiwan is pushing very hard on you know, it being a, uh, you know, sort of a haven for for food, for street food, for gourmet food. Um, you know, and I think obviously food scandals when they when they do uh, appear and when they it is is bad. Um, but you know, I think in a in a sense, just thinking about Chris's experience in China, um, I think it's actually a good thing that um, we're at least finding out about these things. Yeah. Right. Um, so. You know, it, that's sort of the silver lining, if you will. And of course, Taiwan is not alone this time, of course, because it's it's in Europe as well. So I guess they could feel technically it's okay because they're not alone. It's not like <laughs> the last food scandals. But of course, one of the issues here is, of course, this came to light in April, and the government then said it's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's it's all about uh, you know credibility and and belief that uh, when the government says it's okay, it is okay, uh, and that 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 was the big issue uh, for a lot of people when I was living in China. You didn't really always know what to believe when the government said something. So, you know, if if there's a problem, you know, just admit it, take care of it, uh, don't cover it up, and uh, and address it. You know, uh, because you know even you know, cover-ups aside, you don't want to look incompetent either. Right, so I guess the three of us will be enjoying eggs on toast, regardless of the fripronil. Anyway, let's move on to a rather sad tale and an investigation into the alleged rape of a young writer nearly a decade ago by a cram school teacher came to a conclusion this week when the Tainan District Prosecutor's Office decided not to charge Chen Guoxing, citing insufficient evidence. Now, the case, of course, not only made the headlines, but it was also made by the headlines, as the sensationalised coverage of the case of Linny Han saw both the cram school teacher's name and his image adorning nearly every daily 
newspaper on the island even before a criminal investigation had been opened. Now the local media took to internet chat rooms and forums for much of their coverage and of course in reality it was a very sad story for all concerned and there were no winners or losers. Lynn committed suicide on April the 27th and even though it was alleged that their daughter killed herself because she was left traumatised by the alleged rape, Lynn's parents never actually filed any charges against the teacher. And the teacher himself, well, he's now concerned about his personal safety, so much so that he was forced to cancel a press conference earlier this week because he was concerned that the venue which was a well-known hotel in downtown Taipei, would be unable to provide adequate security. So, so Jetting, do you think this was a, a trial by media? I mean, in, in a sense, yes. And I think it's, it's a um, sort of a part of life in our you know, sort of hyper-media. Everything gets shared online. You know, everybody's talking about everything all the time um, kind of society that we live in now. Um, Although I do have to say, I mean, I don't know the, um, I'm, I'm not part of the trial, but um, in sort of modern legal um, principle, right, you cannot, um, sometimes, okay, it, it's very sure, you know, everybody knows somebody, he's the bad guy. But then um, if the evidence, you know, they're, they're very complicated and very strict evidentiary rules to protect um, cases where um, the the um, defendant is in fact innocent, um, but then you know the, with evidence tampering and you know and things like that um, would, would cause a trial to convict an innocent person, right? And so the system does err on having very strict evidentiary rules to um, let go of people who are actually in fact guilty. Um, and so I don't know if this is one of those cases. Um, in in any case, as you said, it's a very sensationalized. Um, case and you know Lin Yi Han she um, did um, she did write a book that um, sort of a fictionalized um, allegedly fictionalized account of her own experiences and so I think a lot of people um, you know took that to heart and said you know this is you know why would she make all this up and I think a lot of people you know it's it's very it, it's very hard to say you know okay I'm not emotionally I'm I I, I won't side with the, the young, innocent, you know, female um, sort of victim in this case. Well, yeah, I mean, this is obviously it's a, you know, the Linny Hunt's uh, suicide was tragic and uh, the facts aren't all clear. So it's it's a little bit difficult to comment. But the fact that uh, she never pressed charges uh, and her parents didn't press charges, um, you know, it, it leaves it leaves a bit of. You know, it leaves questions as to, you know, what was the exact nature of, of the relationship. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things. You, you don't want to have trial by media. Uh, definitely, you know, you don't want to have the masses uh, mobilized to, uh, to influence justice. Um, but, you know, I mean... I, I wish I would, you know, it would be nice to have uh, a woman's input uh, here uh, on on this topic right now. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, like, you know, if if there's if there's a legal basis, if there's if there's evidence, then then prosecute away. Uh, what we have now is a uh, it's it's a novel that suggests um, something happened. Um, 
and uh, and we don't have uh, the key the key witness the key person involved uh, is is no longer with us to uh, to you know to to clarify things. Um, but what about getting to the other point here, Chris? The the fact that, that the media actually use basically the internet chat rooms and forums to base their stories. Well, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, in general in Taiwan, there's a lot of this uh, stir fried news, uh, as as my Taiwanese friends call it. Um, you know, it's uh, it you know having some some uh, serious investigative journalism going into that uh you know applied to stories like this uh would would probably uh be be a bit healthier for public discussion i definitely agree um and i think um just coming from a uh you know legal background um i mean the law the the sort of formal justice system in the country um provides sort of the baseline level of of justice right and as i mentioned um overall we would like I think ideally it should err on the side of letting guilty people go rather than err on the side of convicting innocent people, right? And so, um, you know, again, it's, it's a tragic story um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that, that, that's just so dramatic that I, I think it's, it, it, it is so hard, it, at least, you know, speaking personally, it's, it's very hard to emotionally not um, side with um, the weaker, um, you know, sort of the person in the weaker position here. So, um, I yeah. I do think I, I think there's another. Um, if I if I may, just another uh, wrinkle, which is that um, I mean, people in Taiwan don't really have the same kind of confidence in the legal system, right, or in the the judges, right. That's um, because coming out of martial law and coming out of authoritarian government, where the judges were influenced and um, pretty much in the pocket of the KMT, um, you know, I think I think there is also that sense of well, you know, well, we don't really know if we can trust trust the judges. Maybe they were bought off. Um, you know, this uh, no cram schools. They have a lot of money. They have you know a lot of connections. You know, who knows? You know what's going on behind the scenes. I think there's always a little bit of conspiracy theory going on. Um, again, um, I have no idea. Um, you know, I would rather say you know what that's just. We have to start trusting the judiciary at some point. Right. And finally this week, firefighters here in Taiwan have had enough of being on the front lines when it comes to the removal of dangerous snakes, hornets' nests and bee problems. Now, the National Association of Firefighters this week came out and said that, basically, they handled 85,099 cases involving dangerous animals last year island-wide. Now, that figure was almost double the 48,019 cases that firefighters actually had to handle fires. Now, one firefighter was badly infected by a snake and had to have his leg amputated, while another firefighter was hospitalised earlier this year after he was bitten by a cobra. Now, the Council of Agriculture last year said it would take over responsibility for the capture of dangerous creatures, but there's a catch there. The 15,000 <laughs> firefighters in Taiwan vastly outnumber the few personnel that some local agricultural agencies actually employ, making it rather difficult for local governments to properly handle the matter. So, Chris, are you on the side of the firefighters here? Do you think they should concentrate on fires and other issues rather than capturing snakes, moving out hornets' nests, tackling bees and, well other dangerous creatures 
It does. It does seem that fighting fires should be their main mission. Uh, you know, in the states where I'm from, uh, you know, you've got the the classic image of the firefighter. Uh, you know, get it, help rescuing the cat from the tree uh, with with the ladder. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean fires. That that's that's their core competency. Fighting fires. What if there's a fire and you know someone's busy catching snakes? Also, there was a. Uh, I believe a firefighter recently had his leg amputated uh, after after getting bitten by a snake. And that so. was that was last year. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I mean it, it's you know people should do what they're trained to do. <laughs> that's that's basically the long and short of it. Right, Jetting, you live in California. If a rather large spider crawls into your apartment or house, do you call the fire brigade? Actually, I I don't know because um, <laughs> I mean I. I would think not, but then then the next question is, well, who do you call? Like, right? Like, who are you going to call? I think that's um, part. I think that's part of the problem in Taiwan that people automatically think, oh, I'll call the fire brigade. Right, because I mean, like, who who else is there? I mean, the, the, the police. Uh, I mean, who else has this sort of? I mean, who who else in your mind? You know, it's like, all right, like the people who show up. You know, what kind of equipment do they carry? You know, like, I mean, I'm not right. It, 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 it's like. Yes, there is a humongous, you know, like nest of, uh, you know, scorpions up on the third floor, you know, roof, you know, who's got the equipment to even reach there, right? And, you know, I, I think the solution here, um, you know, I, you either train the firefighters and give them more funding and resources to, and say, okay, you know what, this is your job now, but we'll, we'll help you get this done. Or you say, okay, you know, maybe there's some enterprising Taiwanese, you know, companies who would like to get in on this action and you know make some money um removing you know dangerous wildlife and creatures and charge people hey there's an idea for not an idea for a startup there um yeah and i you know let, it needs an app the, let the market you know let the market sort that out um you know private contractor you know could could do that right i mean it's if you have a um, broken pipe, right, you're not going to call the firefighters, right? You call a plumber, right? If you if there's a huge spider, you know, in your house, um, you call them uh, some sort of exterminator, right? I mean, you have to pay a fee, you have to pay some sort of, you know, pay for their their services, but you know, I I don't see anything wrong with that in this case. Anyway, that's where we'll leave this week here in Taiwan on this week in Taiwan, and I've been joined in the studio today by Chris Horton. Thanks, Gavin. And on the phone by Jetting Ye. Have a good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.